May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. In 2005, I was lucky enough to go to a meeting in Israel. Uh, for most of the week we were in the meeting, we met, as you do, um, with a few kind of side distractions, I'm going to meet the bishop. But for two days, we uh, were taken out by um, Armenian tour guides who took us one day around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and all the sites around there, and then another day up to Galilee and Nazareth and all around there where I had the most expensive fish and chip meal of my life. <laughs> the day we went around Jerusalem, and environs, uh, we went and visited the traditional site of the Ascension on the Mount of Olives. And in the car park, uh, somebody was offering camel rides. So here's my friend Sam uh, on the camel. And uh, so this is this is pre-takeoff. So you get on the camel, and it's a bit up in the air, and it's a bit of a mission to get on there. If you're kind of like me, it would probably be even more of a mission now. And then I don't know what I thought. I thought I had this under control. I was a little anxious, but I wasn't too nervous. But I hadn't really thought about how a camel goes up. And when a camel goes up, they put out one leg and lift, which meant suddenly you're lurching seriously off to one side and staring at the pavement thinking, this is going to hurt when I come off. And then the other leg goes out and it really does feel like you're kind of lurching all the way back over to the other side. And then you're up. So this is post lift off. And me, clearly, uh, with my heart thumping and um, just trying to center myself again having survived the liftoff. Uh, but also, the world looks very different from up there. It's a very different kind of view. On Tuesday morning, we were talking about the ascension and where it happened, and I told this story. And then I thought, in many ways, the ascension is a camel-lurching moment. Like... The disciples thought they had things under control. They thought they had it sorted out. And then all of a sudden everything kind of lurches sideways. And they're struggling to hang on. And when it's over, the world looks very different. And when I thought about that even more, I realized we're in the middle of three stories which are like that. So for the last few weeks, we have been situated in John's retelling of the last meal. And I don't call it the last supper because nowhere in John's gospel does he have any Eucharistic moment. He doesn't have a time where Jesus shares bread and wine and says, this is my body and blood. Back in John 6, he talks about being the bread of life. And that's as close in John's gospel as you get to anything like that. So the... The main thing in John's Gospel with the, with the meal is the washing of the feet. And then he does some teaching, uh, and then he says, let's go, and then he spends three more chapters talking and praying. 
which most people think was added later. And chapter 17 is the great high priestly prayer, which we have been, which is always on the seventh Sunday in Easter, uh, of Easter, and, um, and you can kind of take three years to get through it. So we're in year C, we heard the last bit. So we have been listening, if you were kind of paying attention, for the last three years. Uh, in this last prayer, the great high priestly prayer, Jesus starts off by praying for himself and all that he is going to face. And he prays for his friends, his disciples who were gathered with him. And then he prays for us. And that's the prayer we heard today. He prays for all those who will come to know God's life because of those disciples, because of the trust, belief, that they will put into the way of Jesus and the presence of God in that way, which is what today's prayer is all about. And he was praying this for a group of people who were already pretty anxious. There's no, all the way through this last part of John's Gospel, things are tense. When they come back to Jerusalem, they say, don't go back, you'll get killed. And Thomas then, and Jesus says, well, I'm going back. So Thomas says, we will go with you and die with you. And after the raising of Lazarus, they go and hide because people are wanting to kill them. So when they enter Jerusalem, they know this is the end game. When they meet for this meal, they don't necessarily know it's the last meal, but they know things are getting really tense. They're getting close to the end. And so this is a very poignant prayer for those disciples as they gathered there. And I wonder what it was like for those disciples as they listened to that prayer right here at the end. As they listened to Jesus praying that they will be drawn into the oneness, into oneness with God. Immersed into the love that is at the heart of God. That Jesus and the Father have shared and revealed this love and they are drawn into this love and are invited to share that with each other and the world. And I wonder what it was like for them both at the time and then after the events that follow as they thought back to that prayer. This is a camel lurching moment. They were hanging on for dear life. And after it was over, everything would look different. It would change how they lived. And it would shape what they saw as of utmost importance. For the last six weeks, we have been in the season of Easter, the week of weeks, it's called the Great 50 Days, which sits at the centre of our church year, Easter, which ends with Pentecost next Sunday. And during these six weeks, seven weeks, uh, the Gospel readings remind us of the stories of the resurrection of Easter, the stories of the resurrection of the crucified Messiah who was raised from death to become the fully human Messiah. And so for seven weeks we are invited to reflect on what resurrection means for us and what it means to live resurrection lives. 
For those first disciples, I think the resurrection was a camel lurching moment. They were dealing with the grief of Jesus dying in such a horrific way. And when the women tell them, these men disciples, that Jesus is risen, they won't believe it. They refuse to believe it. Even when Peter goes back and has a look for himself, he still doesn't believe it. But Jesus not only Jesus is amongst them, but not as he was before. Not in the way that they had known him. Not in the way that you and I are with each other. I suspect that for many of us, as we think about resurrection, it's become a bit ho-hum, really. Something we celebrate every year, something we say we believe in when we say the creeds. And for others, it's become a point of doctrinal belief to beat people over the head with. Do you believe in the physical resurrection? And it wasn't supposed to be ho-hum or a point of doctrinal belief. It was supposed to be something that shook us up. That was, well, a camel lurching thing. Sending us sideways as it sent them sideways, staring at the pavement, wondering if we will survive. The resurrection changed their lives. It changed their present and it shaped what they saw of utmost importance from that point on. And on Thursday, we remembered the ascension. We celebrated the ascension. Well, we might have. I was actually in Auckland at a, at a doctoral graduation, so which was kind of like an ascension, I guess. <laughs> we remembered how this fully human, resurrected Christ, the human one, as the Common English Bible translates, Son of Man, returned to the, to the God, to the Godhead, to the heart of the Godhead, the human one went into the heart of the Godhead, connecting us with the heart of God. <clears throat> I had another Eucharist on Wednesday and somebody said, well, Jesus had to leave behind his humanity to return to God. And I went, well, that's very Greek way of putting it. Uh, but it's not actually in the Bible. It's not a Hebrew way of seeing the world. Jesus, the human one, returned to God, still human. So our humanity is taken into the heart of God, connecting us with the heart of God and all that manifests from God. The human and the divine are drawn together in that moment. The podcast that I listen to each week from Working Preacher, one of the people on it is Matt Skinner, and he said, this God is a God that is always drawing in. This God is a God who is always making disparate things connected to one another and in relationship. This unity with God and each other is where divinity is taking the world. The ascension as reported by Luke is another camel lurching moment. It blows their minds. Just as they were getting used to this new resurrected Jesus being around, he's gone again. What now? The ascension changes their present. It would change how they lived their lives. And it would shape what they saw as of utmost importance. So what about us? Each 
each of these is supposed to be camel lurching moments for us that toss us around and make us hang on for dear life, wonder if we're going to survive, and at the end of it, seeing the world differently. So how does the resurrection or the ascension change our present? How does it shape how we live? And how does it affect what we see as of utmost importance? Well, today is the fifth Sunday, and it's 10 o'clock service. Normally we wouldn't have a sermon, we just do crazy activities, but uh, there really isn't enough of us at the moment to do that. So we're all going to have an opportunity to just talk to our neighbours about these things for a while. So I invite you to talk to your neighbour, pick one, resurrection or ascension, I don't mind which one you pick, and just have a conversation about how that changes your present, how it shapes your life, and how it affects what you see as of utmost importance. Have a conversation.